good thing about podcasts is you can listen to them while you're doing other things, except for this one, which requires your full attention. <laughs> so, wake up. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. Now, we're going to pick up where we left off with our exploration of the Great Subject Knowledge Compendium. Before I do that, I'd like to remind you about the live stream on the 30th of December from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And obviously, we've got Neil going to do a session on comprehension, amongst other things. Chris talking about the art and science of teaching primary reading 2.0 and lots, lots more. Um, we've already had some very generous donations. And on the day, you can donate and sort of prepare to ask the Tadape regulars any question you like, essentially. So check out the details on Twitter. But let's get right back in to the great subject knowledge compendium. What about history? How long do you have? <laughs> podcast, first of all. Um, I think, Kieran, you recommended this podcast to me, and I've been devouring it ever since, and that's The Ancients. A cracking uh, bit of work there that gets done by them. They pick themes, they pick eras, they pick characters, and usually it's more of an interview kind of uh, podcast rather than something like Fall of Civilizations, which is a very narrative driven. So um, the gentleman who uh, records it has what I think is one of the best jobs in the world. So he just goes to the British Museum seemingly every week and gets to, uh, you know, interview Dr. So-and-so who is a specialist in, and they just sit down and have a chat for an hour. So really, really good. You're going to really find something that's linked to the national curriculum. Uh, I've got uh, kind of five recommendations uh, specifically, which kind of tie into the uh, national curriculum. Two really good ones on the Sumerians. One is called the Sumerians and one is called Uruk, which is uh, one of the first kind of, well, which I was kind of assumed was like the first um, Sumerian city. Um, however, within the first two minutes, it was a clear misconception that I had that it was actually one of the first uh, Sumerian cities. Uh, they've done a whole today, uh, today, not specifically today, but this year is the centenary of uh, Howard Carter uh, finding a Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings. So he's done a fair few uh, episodes looking at uh, Tutankhamun, particularly around the significance. And that episode's really good because when you think about what good history is and you want to get those uh, second order concepts in, if you, as a primary teacher, you're thinking, gosh, okay, well, what was the significance of the finding of Tutankhamun? Then um, certainly listen to that one because it kind of makes you realize then, you know, the the idea, the notion of like the museum economy kind of really then kicked off with this, with the finding Tutankhamun. Um, another episode, there's the rise and fall of uh, Roman London, which obviously is smack bang right there for um, the Romans in Britain. And then you've got the end of um, Stone Age Orkney. Um, Orkney is where uh, Scara Bray is, which was a early uh, Stone Age uh, settlement. So kind of you know, having some subject knowledge around those is always going to be really kind of helpful. 
Nice. I was also going to recommend that podcast. They've got a really good one about what's the wall? Uh, Hadrian's Wall, where they talk to an expert about <laughs> the Great that. Wall of China. <laughs> <laughs> and well, I was actually thinking about the Antonin Wall as well. I get, you always get yeah. those confused. Um, but they had an expert talking about how it was less of a defense system and more of a trading post for yeah. potentially what the picked would they have been around at the time? Yeah, picks were what they would call what would have been Scotland, so people in Scotland. And then ironically, I think like the Scottish actually refers to the Irish at that time as well. It's all the all or the Scotty, I believe it was, is actually Irish, not Scottish. Yeah, yeah. I mean it all ended up Celtic in the end, didn't it? I did. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've got two more I'd throw into that. There's, I mean, I don't know how relevant this is, but it's really interesting. It's called The Age of Napoleon. And essentially, it's a massive podcast about Napoleon. And then you've got the History of Rome podcast. I mean, the last time it was updated was 2017. Mm-hmm. But they've gone to quite long lengths to uh, outline the uh, the history of Rome. And so there, there must be something. And even if you just go to the ancients, and if you're not from the South, you might want to listen to the episode about Hadrian's Wall if you're not, and if you are from the south, then you might look at Roman London. You know, so I think yeah, yeah, something for everyone. And the good thing about podcasts is you can listen to them while you're doing other things, except for this one, which requires your full attention. <laughs> so wake up. <laughs> I can see I'm a little out of my depth in this one, so I'm just going to throw in a couple of things called History of Knowledge by Charles Van Doren or Van Doren. Not sure about the pronunciation. It is a little kind of in inverted commas western in its um in its focus um so bear that in mind but um if you're interested in european history um in particular i think it's a you know a, a, it gives you a little taste of so many little things um it will appeal to people like me who don't necessarily want to deep dive into a subject until they've got that 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 sense of you know an overview so if you want a bit of an overview of kind of as i say in inverted commas western um history then i'd highly recommend that i'm also going to borrow something from a late i'm going to say this one again a little bit later so you know spoiler but i watched um a collection of very light art documentaries by Andrew Graham Dixon called The Art of Spain, The Art of Italy, The Art of America, The Art of Russia, The Art of Germany, and The Art of uh, Scandinavia. And yes, they are very interesting on their own terms because of the art that's described, but actually they give a lovely little potted history of the countries themselves. Not comprehensive, of course, because the focus is art, but as a way of showing the interdisciplinary nature of these subjects and the way that we can explore history through art and the way that we can explore art through history they are brilliant and they get better as um he gets better at the format if you're going to check out one of them i'd probably recommend um the art of germany in particular which is absolutely brilliant i'll I'll try to avoid mentioning that again later when we get to art but (laughs) um yeah those are great so I've kind of inadvertently kind of set myself a little quest trying to find three um, sort of, I don't want to say pop history, like a um, a step up from something that like a proper historian would read, but also not necessarily something that's just kind of tries to dumb down some history, but that's still kind of accessible to people. Um, and I want to try and find one of these for kind of every curriculum area um, that's in the national curriculum. So I think like last year, 
the uh, the chapter in the map of knowledge that looks at Baghdad is like super if you're going to actually um, look at Baghdad as one of your kind of non-European uh, civilization studies. So, so far, I've got Toby Green, A Fistful of Shells, uh, West Africa from the rise of the slave trade to the age of revolution plenty in there about um the kingdom of benin um so if that's a focus it's kind of really interesting to look at the way that um benin came to be and how um foreign influences um influenced the kingdom of benin to how it got to the way it was as well um i've then got uh, rupert jackson the roman occupation of britain and its legacy which again is just pretty much beautifully written uh beautifully accessible um Rupert Jackson is a you know, he's a he is a, he is a historian by trade, and it really kind of does lay out exactly kind of what the impact of Roman Britain was. So again, if you're looking at that in the curriculum, you can very easily take some ideas from in there and uh, run with that as well. This one, Kieran, was something that you recommended to me, and that's uh, Thomas Williams' Viking Britain. Um, which is go again if you're looking at. Um, the Vikings is kind of a really kind of accessible book that doesn't go too heavy, which kind of gives you enough. Um, there's plenty of core in there, but certainly lots of hinterland uh, that you can kind of um, take pupils down to and kind of, you know, whenever pupils ask those questions of, you know, why and what else um, was happening, um, you know, it gives you plenty of information and knowledge at times to those kind of questions as well. And yeah, it's not clear. I, I really enjoy this kind of thing. It also challenges the lazy stereotypes that surround the Scandinavian and Anglo-Saxon peoples of that particular period of history, you know, um, and by the end of it, you're like, oh, my goodness, they've pretty much shaped European history for the better part of 300 years. Um, so, yeah, it's a fantastic book. And, you know, looking back at what we explored last year, I realized I've been on this Viking Anglo-Saxon dive for well over 12 months now. <laughs> And, you know, maybe by the ne next year's one, I'll be considered an expert in, in this field. Um, because, yeah, I mean, some of my great courses recently have been like the, the Anglo-Saxon history, about Scandinavians. Um, at the minute, I'm listening to one, I think I recommend this, that I know maybe didn't, um, High Medieval Period, you know, that period between 1000 and 1300. Um, and, you know, how sort of society was shaped what, what, and the fact that they had greater records kept after that period, you know, up until the year 1000, very few records post 1000 onwards, you know, increasingly more. And so you get this more developed picture of society. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Um, there's a paper I'm going to recommend. Um, it's called The Success of Sky Polarimetric Viking Navigation, Revealing the Chance Viking Sailors Could Reach Greenland from Norway. And it's a, I don't know if you've seen Vikings, you know, the thing that Ragnar Lofbrok calls up to the sun on a cloudy day just to sort of see through and navigate. Um, I think it it roughly gives them a 90 to 100 percent chance of making that journey. Um, I think this was a Christian book of retweet a long time ago, and it was in my bookmarks. And I thought, yeah, that's fantastic. You've got timemaps.com, which was a Stuart Tiffany recommendation. Um, and to be honest, anything from Stuart Tiffany, I know he's got those excellent chronology videos and his CPD sessions online. Well, we're checking out. And then uh, this one might have been unique. It's in my bookmarks as well. Incredibly detailed maps of medieval trade routes at merchantmachine.co.uk. Did that come from you? Sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's exactly what it says on the, 
on the tin. Now, I had a question. There was something... What was the name of that castle augmentation website you were flying about? Because you were flying about in a little castle. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's from a website called TimeRef. So, TimeRef.com. Um, and within that, um, clearly they've used some uh, software to kind of create 3D worlds and stuff like that. But you basically go around, you can explore um, a Motton Bailey castle, you can explore uh, the White Tower, um, which is on the Tower of London, and uh, Norman Keeps. So in terms of that kind of like world building aspect that you might want to do with a uh, particularly your younger students who, who might be in your year one or year two. And personally, I just think castles are you know, a great um, unit to kind of study. Because again, thinking about uh, change and continuity, it's it's a real obvious one that they started off as Martin Bailey's and were made of wood and then they got bigger and then they were made out of stone and, you know, more people lived within the grounds of them until they got to the, you know, the middle ages and, and that kind of prototypical idea of a castle that we have. So yeah, definitely recommend uh, timeref.com, uh, uh, plenty of information about castles um, and yeah, that good bit of fun of just kind of exploring some castles as well. Kind of on that kind of note as well, um, I've, it's it's an old book, but it's such a good book. Um, it's another DK one, and it's called A Street Through Time. And if you're not kind of familiar with it, it's, the concept of it is just beautiful in that it's a pretty much a picture book of just what would be a street. Um, and it just tracks this one street kind of throughout the different periods. So all the way kind of from, uh, you know, Bronze um, if that's like, you know, Stone Age settlers, Bronze Age, Iron Age settlers, Roman occupation, then uh, the Anglo-Saxons, then the Vikings, uh, you know, Tudor England, um, you know, medieval towns, then Tudor England, evidently. Um, throughout, and then it comes, it has like a, it's quite an old book. So I think when it gets to like 2010, it's, like, it's called like the Future Street and it looks nothing like 2010. So you really do kind of have to like, yeah, we're not going to show you that last page. But again, kind of, if you're thinking about how do we make history, history and not just factual isn't this an interesting story to think about how like life has actually changed yeah it's a it's a fantastic book in fact anything by dk in the history uh side of it is just beautiful i think i've got a few that i got they have like a knowledge encyclopedia series which is just wonderful for um diagrams that you might want to use in the curriculum and they have a really beautiful one called history of the world um map by map um, which again is just a beautiful picture book. If you had that in your um, reading, uh, in your class library, and just looked at, you know, put one of those under the visualizer each day, you would just get kids absolutely enthralled with uh, both history and geography. I love the idea of the street through time, like the last few pages being some like dystopian hellhole. <laughs> you know, the, the person had just finished reading a lot of kind of dark fiction and then finished that book's like, no, 2010 is going to look like this. Well, oddly, like, you know, maybe he should have done it. It would be more accurate than what's there. Uh... <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah, right, probably closer the to the, you know, the jetpacks and whatever's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I'm going to leave just one more. I promise it will just be one more. Um, and again, I don't know how I found it, but I'm so glad that I did. Um, it's called Museum of the World. It's uh, a project that's clearly been done with um, Google and the British Museum. And clearly what they've done is, again, 
um, software-based, they've created a giant timeline and kind of that timeline has then kind of been divided into seven sections, one for each continent. And what you can do is just literally track back every single, uh, I don't know if it's every single, but the vast majority of items that they have in the British Museum. So you can go back to the, by continent, you can go all the way back in time, then you can kind of look at by continent as well, depending on whether it's in the furthest left, the furthest right, in the middle, wherever it might be. Um, it's just beautiful. You can just spend hours and hours and hours just kind of gliding through it and just being like, well, I wonder what this one is. What's really nice is that you can also, um, you can kind of view everything as a whole, or you can kind of uh, view things vaguely kind of by concepts, this idea of like art and culture, uh, conflicts and war, um, you know, trade and business and trade and economy. So you can kind of see all the items that they have uh, that kind of fill within, fit within those kind of conceptual ideas. So yeah, it's an easy one for you to lose uh, quite a lot of time in. So I really recommend Museum of the World. It kind of just makes you kind of realize actually how powerful having that stuff at your fingertips, you know, really is. So, I mean, the history section could be an episode on its own. So <laughs> All right. We need to rethink that next year. What about geography? I haven't got much. <laughs> I, like, I did reading and maths and now I'm spent. But actually, I've got more of a tip for this one. I remember when I was um, teaching um, geography on the regular, one of the things I like to do and one thing I found really useful whenever I arrived at a new school was to inspect the atlases, find out what brand of atlas they used in my year group and get really familiar with it. So if in doubt, get familiar with the um, the atlases that your school uses so that it, using them with kids is second nature. I'd add along those lines that while there are, you know, you can find anything you want to find on Google Maps, etc. But there is still something to me, at least quite beautiful about a really nice atlas and for 20 30 quid you can get yourself an a3 beautifully presented atlas um and it, you end up looking at it you end up going to it because these things are actually just beautiful things to learn from so if you haven't treated yourself to one and you're in, in any way inclined to do so i would recommend it yeah on the um idea of maps you obviously got um I don't know if it was out when we recorded last year or not, but like Prisoners of Geography has been uh, written as a sort of like a picture book, um, which is a beautiful book. Um, as I say, you show that to kids and they will absolutely be enthralled with everything that's in there as well. Uh, I've got a few, a few podcasts. One is one that I found um, kind of in preparation for this and I've listened to a couple of episodes. It's called Geography Ninja. I've been trying to find, like I said, I know plenty of history podcasts. Um, you know, they take themes, they take ideas, and they talk about them in depth. Um, Geography Ninja is kind of the first one that I've been able to find that does that on a good level for um, what I would call like primary geography. So I listened to a really interesting episode on um, plate tectonics, uh, which again is perfect for um, the year uh three or four uh, key stage two primary curriculum i've also got revised gcse geography by sanka learn so again more than the primary school teacher needs to know but in terms of there being what's nice about those ones that they are really really short i think those ones average around like 15 to 20 minutes so just really kind of short it's obviously they're made for gcse children so in terms of our subject knowledge it's pitched 
you know, just slightly higher than where we need to be. I've also then got the Royal um, Geography Association, plenty of resources, um, schemes of work, lessons on there, and they're always um, really, really high quality as well. Then my final one is, it's called maps.nls.uk. And basically this just allows you to have a a side-by-side map. So you have like a modern map on one side, then on the other side is usually a map from, say about the 1800s, maybe mid to late 1800s. And so what you see on the right-hand side is obviously the modern map. And then what you see on the left-hand side is the exact same location as that, but just where it looked like, in this case, 200, 250 years ago. So uh, really good to have a play with that, just to kind of see how settlements have built up. And uh, I was looking at um, the port of Dover and how the port of Dover, there was still a port there uh, 250 years ago, but how that's expanded and how that's changed now compared to 250 years ago was uh, really interesting. And so that's a nice little benefit that you can get in the in the classroom. So that one's a bit more of a teaching tool really than something for subject knowledge, but I still think it's a really useful one to useful one to have. Along those lines, and I imagine it's something we possibly mentioned last time, the resource um, Digimat, there's a nice aspect of that where you can have a modern map up and you kind of scroll across and it goes through any previous maps that it has of that area so that it kind of fades out the, the kind of the modern map to um, something, say, from like I saw one for Peter for the area of Peterborough we, we were looking at had um map of Peterborough now to Peterborough in the 1950s to Peterborough kind of 120 or so years ago. And you can see the way that, you know, the settlements change within that. So, yeah, keep if your school subscribes to the Digimap, uh, is it Digimap or Digimaps? I'm not sure, but whatever it's called. I think it's singular. I think it's Digimap for school. Digimap. So if your school um, subscribes to that, then um, it's worth having taking 20, 30 minutes just to have a play with that to see the functionality that it offers because, yeah, it's a, it's a cracking tool to use in the classroom. Do you reckon the Geography Ninja is related to the Vocabulary Ninja? As far as I'm aware, there is no, no relation between the two. I've got a few things on the subject of maps. I mean, I think... One of the things I find most difficult when I was teaching geography was finding templates for maps. And this one's from a a tweet by someone called Lauren Pellegrino, and it's 100 blank maps. It's a link to a Google Drive. So there's always the risk that it won't always be available, but very, very helpful. And then a guy called Mike Snowden did a thread on the geological history of the Mediterranean. And he basically went back from as far back as you can remember. Obviously, I can't quality assure, but it was one of those tweets that felt like someone should be paying him for the quality of this tweet because it was really, really interesting. I think the only other long thread I've ever really been through is the one about Fabergé eggs where the guy outlined the history of each of the eggs. It was akin to this. This is akin to that, but with Mediterranean geology and well worth uh, checking out. Now, Tom Brassington says he goes to the BBC News for case studies which, uh, you know, potentially could be a very, very good thing. So, yeah, so well worth checking out. And, you know, things like Newsround will often flag things like that, won't they? Um, interesting uh, events and potentially local news too because each local area will have a bit more of a, a local focus, won't they? Um, so well worth checking out. 
there are some really good Twitter accounts as well for um, um, for maps. And there's beautiful maps, amazing maps, which are obviously, you know, really, really in useful. Um, I've found some really nice kind of like topographical stuff um, from there or some, um, some nice maps where you can kind of use, again, beyond my own subject knowledge here, but how geographers would look at light and so like light pollution of like cities to kind of get a rough idea of like population and stuff like that so like there's a few really nice maps with that there's also then like terrible maps so if you want to do a bit of assessment um that's a really a really fun one which is about you know this is what the united states is going to look like in like 50 years time because of climate change and like just like the mediterranean just been like superimposed in like the middle of the americans so you had like some americans who are like well why like why is uh like florida not underwater but like the rocky mountains are like this is clearly nonsense uh you know and they obviously didn't quite tweak that you know um, sicily and italy were also kind of like smack bang in the uh, florida as well so a good bit of fun just kind of you know i think you know play around with it um to show kids that you know get a nice bit of digital literacy as well by getting a bit of geography in there science where would you go to chris well again something we've undoubtedly mentioned on the podcast um but i'm gonna kind of turn it around a little bit we've talked about how much uh we love uh, the documentary series the ascent of man uh, this year i went back to the book of the ascent of man i think neil might have even mentioned this on the podcast the book itself it is so beautifully written Jacob Bronowski is is his writing the script that he put together for that is um as eloquent as he is um when he is interviewed so if you get a chance you can pick it up for almost nothing on eBay um so yeah the ascent of man is a wonderful exploration of the, the history and the value of science from someone who really knows his stuff. Yes, there are aspects of it, of course, that are dated because the series was released in the 60s. I think it was one of the flagship documentaries of BBC Two when uh, David Attenborough uh, was in charge when he uh, when, uh, of, of programming there. But yeah, it's a, it's a real tour de force, that book. So highly recommend that. The latest teaching together looked at Pythagoras. I just went back and looked at that little bit that he does about, uh, I think it's episode five, uh, where he just talks about um, you know, Pythagorean theorem and how it relates to music and all that stuff. So I've gone for Adam Boxer's How to Teach uh, Secondary Science, purely because again, the like, subject knowledge, it's, it's kind of useful for us, but also kind of I went into knowing like this book is more just about teaching science and is actually just a really kind of good uh, it's a pedagogical tour de force so it doesn't really kind of quite <laughs> well it's really the reasons why i recommend it you go away there thinking yeah i'll i'll remember some uh key stage three science and just come out knowing how to be a better teacher um not necessarily for key stage three science but for you know just general teaching pedagogy so really do recommend that for both of those aspects so you do get a nice bit of um subject knowledge enhancement from uh looking looking at that as well I've got a couple of things. Mr. Allington on Twitter, he refined his knowledge organizers off the back of Kate Jones's episode in season five. And Kate had some cracking advice on knowledge organizers. I was like, you know, the usual question. It's really hard to do these right. What should you do? 
And I think about a week or so after he'd refined his knowledge organizers. So well worth checking out. I don't know if they're freely available. I know they're using them in school, but if you're looking for an example, I think he'd shared his science examples on there. Uh, on Twitter, so well, yeah, I, I'd recommend having a look at those. Um, and then there's also someone's made a resource called 99 Quick Questions on Medicine. And I don't think all 99 questions are applicable, but I know Neil, you had a you had a a unit on the history of medicine, and there may be the opportunity to utilize this in year six, I think. You know, because I've certainly seen classes recently learning about the heart in year six and things like that there. So th this might be something that is applicable in some classes. There's a, a Twitter account called The Pigs Boson. It's a thread of the best science and maths books that are available with free links in each of the tweets in the thread. So, you know, classic books, free. You can't ask for more than that. And I think I've had a look at some of them. Some of them are way over my head, but I think there's gold in them their hills if you go looking for it. Is it okay if I plug one more thing? And it is a plug. A, a shortcut to basic subject knowledge for science might be the um, curriculum, the science curriculum that I put together um, that's available on my blog, primarycolor.home.blog. There are curric free curriculum products there for kind of history and geography as well. But I think the science one is the one that is because it's based on, you know, the national curriculum. It's most likely to be, I think, directly useful as a just a subject knowledge resource. Other free curriculums are available. Another one is uh, the core knowledge stuff. They're really, really good. They usually have like quite accessible texts that go with them, although a big part of the philosophy of the core knowledge is you know reading and making sure that children get that reading mileage and so it's obviously because it's american it doesn't quite map up I and mean, you need to make sure you find the american one not the not the uk one which unfortunately is somewhat lacking behind the uh our american cousins but they have really good kind of accessible books for pupils about some kind of core ideas the only other one again to do it's more a, a teaching tool rather than perhaps of your own um subject knowledge but there's a website called fet p-h-e-t and they do some really cool simulations that you can kind of do so there are kind of three that i think that are particularly cool for primary teachers uh one is called gravity in orbits and so what you can do you can actually manipulate these simulations so it starts off with just like the earth orbiting around the sun then you can kind of do things like increase the mass of the sun and then you can kind of see how that affects the orbit or you can like decrease the uh, the mass of the earth or you can like physically or if the earth orbits is bigger you can actually like drag the earth around and you know eventually you might get to the point where the earth like crashes into the sun and then it says you know game over start again kind of thing there's another really kind of good one on Static electricity, which again, you might want to look at for a bit of hinterland. Another really good one on gases. So like looking at the states of matter. So you can kind of like, it starts off with like these gas particles that act like gas particles. And then you can kind of like do things like, you know, make the chamber colder. So you can then kind of see how the particles actually um, 
change and then you can say make it warmer so you can see how the particles would then change etc uh, etc et and there was one other really really good one and it's called natural selection and on that you can kind of track um there's lots of rabbits and they jump around obviously that kind of like comes up with uh every so often they uh they reproduced but you can kind of do things like introduce predators or you can kind of do things like uh, increase the amount of food that's available or you can introduce like a different color rabbit and make that the dominant gene so you can kind of then kind of see how all of these things then uh affect the, those ecosystems so you need a little bit of subject knowledge to kind of get to grips with it and understand it kind of first but i think you know playing around with it a little bit it certainly helped me make made a few uh connections in terms of my scientific knowledge and good fun to you know play around with and definitely something that you can introduce to uh to pupils Thinking about things that go a little further and stretch our subject knowledge, as you've done there, the Royal Institution have a whole series of lectures on a whole variety of subjects, but obviously the ones on science are probably what they're most renowned for, including particularly accessible Christmas lectures for children that are still a guilty pleasure of mine. So yeah, Royal Institution on YouTube, loads of free lectures, really interesting stuff. Um, and that goes right from the sort of things that will just be subject knowledge that might help you in your day-to-day -day teaching all the way up to stuff that's you know aspects of quantum mechanics so yeah highly recommend that fantastic now we're getting into that part of the curriculum where the opportunities to share resources may become fewer because of limitations in our own knowledge or because they are underserved generally. So I think maybe we should resolve that in 2023, we're going to look for places to go for music. I suppose religious education, I mean, not because we quite a lot last time, languages, arts, DT and computing. I think we should give them the, the opening slots. We'll reverse the order next time um, as, a, as a way to, you know, because I think a lot of people will benefit from that. Is there anything for music that you guys would point to in addition to last time? So what have we got for last time? We've got discovering music theory, elements of jazz, great masterworks or concert masterworks, BBC 10 pieces, classical 100, model music curriculum. Anything to add? Charanga, if you don't have it, is, is, uh, it is again, a, like a, a subscription model uh, scheme of work that's got plenty on there. We're currently using it. This year, it's certainly kind of giving our teachers the support that any kind of you want any scheme to give. Um, very feature rich. You can kind of use their curriculum. You can they've mapped out the model music curriculum, or you can create your own bespoke scheme of work. We've enjoyed kind of experimenting with Charanga, certainly. Um, but that's all I have to offer, really. I've been doing the one thousand and one albums to listen to before you die that Becky Allen was tweeting about a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, contemporary music is quite popular in schools. You know, I know people have like artists of the week or, you know, I know if I think of my own kids' schools, they're coming home talking to me about bands from the 90s that their teachers are choosing as artists of the week. And I'm all, where did you hear about those guys? And, you know, who would have thought my eight-year-old would know who Bewitched were? Um, <laughs> you know, not me. <laughs> um, but this has definitely opened my eyes to music that I would never have considered and hadn't even heard of, but yet it's contemporary, you know, so 
I think the oldest album I got was a Billie Holiday one from 1958. The most recent one was from 2020. And what I do is I go and I read up about the artist while I'm listening. And so I'm getting almost like a, a short history of music. Um, and I've only had one album so far that I would actually choose to listen to again. But I feel like I know more about ears that I didn't know about. Another one sponsored by Becky Allen. Perhaps we need to get Becky Allen on, but not to talk about the the bigger things about uh, you know education. But you know, actually, Becky can help us with uh, <laughs> our subject knowledge. She recommended a podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs, um, which is, as it says in the tin, it's going to be eventually 500 episodes. It's far from finished. And it kind of tracks back to the beginning of rock and roll all the way to what I imagine is however this uh, list was put together. They've stopped it at some point. I've only listened to a, a couple of episodes, but it's kind of uh, yeah, a really interesting uh, deep dive into how uh, rock music's become the way that it has. Fully recommend a listen if you're um, that way inclined and want to find out a little bit more about rock music. Now, I don't want to offer nothing. So actually, I've just gone through a trawl through my um, YouTube history to find this particular video. There's uh, a chap who's obviously a virtuoso musician, at least on the piano, called Jake, Jacob Collier. And there's a little video I watched called uh, Jacob Collier Answers Music Theory Questions from Twitter. Absolutely worth 15 minutes of your time. Really fascinating, even if you know, the little things that if you're interested in music and have been on your radar, things that you've heard, but I have no idea what they mean, like me. So things like Circle of Fifths and this sort of thing, then yeah, well worth um, checking it out because he breaks things down in a basic accessible way. And yeah, give that a go. I mean, if we're recommending books along the lines of sort of rock history. There's a book called Uncommon People by David Hepworth. I mean, David Hepworth is a pretty prolific rock writer, but it essentially traces the rise and fall of the rock star. Anything to add on religious education? I'm going to cheat here and say that if you get the opportunity to see Adam Smith speak on the subject of RE, and I, I, unless I'm mistaken, he might be speaking on this particular subject on the special episode that's coming up. If you don't catch that, though, he may well talk about RE again at a research ed or elsewhere. But yeah, if you get the chance to hear him talk about it, it's really fascinating. I think last time we heard him talk, the first thing you said, Kieran, was it made you want to teach RE, which I can't think of a, a higher compliment. And it's a a sentiment that I echoed at the time. So yeah, he's really inspiring to listen to on the subject. Yeah. Even when I was a full-time teacher, I tried not to teach RE, you know, P and RE on PPA day. <laughs> to me. Um, yeah. Four o'clock on during the 12 hour stream. So 4 PM. What are we in? BS? No, not BST. GMT. So 4 PM GMT. Adam's going to have an hour to talk about powerful religion. Um, and his uh, his walled garden metaphor is not to be missed. So yeah, definitely worth checking out. I think it's worth just pointing out there as well. It's uh, it will be a book at some point as well. So my uh, recommendation will be a future recommendation. It will be when the uh, if you 
listen and you like what you hear about what Adam has to say about RE, um, there will be a book coming soon, I hope. Future recommendation there, definitely worth um, reading, I've no doubt. What about art and design, which I think encompasses design and technology at the same time? We covered 13 Artists Children Should Know. We covered the art book by Fiden. Very short introductions, art websites, art gallery virtual tours, thinking deeply about post-war impressionist art, the podcast that we did. <laughs> that must have been a, a, a diversion we went on. And then the other National Gallery. Was there anything else you guys would add to that? Seeing as Chris has mentioned uh, The Ascent of Man and the wonderful documentary that that is, um, I think it was a bit, little bit afterwards, there was one called Civilizations by Kenneth Clark, which looked at uh, religious art. So you could fill this in with RE, you could fill it in, in um, art, but it's a beautiful, I think, 12, 13 episodes of looking at um effectively religious art and how that's changed throughout various historical periods of time obviously it is a certain respect a product of its time and um, he takes the civilization as the very kind of westernized uh, version of what civilization is so take that with that pinch of salt but in terms of again the way that it's written and in terms of uh, what you can learn from that um, civilizations is a great uh, it certainly used to be on the BBC iPlayer. I'm not sure that it is anymore, but you can definitely um, still buy the book. Although say with this one, more so than The Ascent of Man, I think being able to look at that art and listen to um, Kenneth Clark talk about it whilst he um, whilst you get the, uh, the film that go, accompanies it, I think is more powerful than just the book itself. Yeah, you're dead right that that was uh, about the same time, except in this case, it was so... Um... When David Attenborough was in charge of BBC Two, when it was first started, he was, I think he was in charge of commissioning for BBC Two. He he started with um, Civilization. He went to, he approached Kenneth Clark. They had dinner as, you know, the way that programmes used to be commissioned. <laughs> and out came this um, incredible uh, documentary. But the thing was, he actually, uh, like Fred, because he was... Um, interested in zoology botany he was he got a hard time from his friends that the first big documentary that long-form documentary that had been created for bbc2 was on the subject of art and that was the reason that the ascent of man um, was created because he then said well we've got to do an equivalent for science and just because we've mentioned those two those two i feel like i should complete the set because there's a third documentary. I know this goes, I apologize that this isn't part of um, art in this case, but going back to kind of history, um, if you're interested in either of those two, you've watched either of those two. Um, Alistair Cook's America is wonderful as well. Since we've mentioned those two, I feel we have to mention Alistair Cook. But getting back onto the subject of art, we mentioned the uh, the art book by... Fiden or Faden, I'm not sure what the name of the publisher is there, but it's, um, yeah, really wonderful. Um, there is apparently, I've not checked it out, but it comes recommended from uh, a friend of mine. There is a children's equivalent. It's called the Children's Art Book by Faden. I think it focuses on 30 artists or 
So yeah, really one to look at. And doubling up what I mentioned earlier, the um, another reason to check out the art of Spain, the art of Italy, Russia, Germany, Scandinavia, etc. by um, Andrew Graham Dixon is because of what it offers in terms of an understanding of art. I've got a DT podcast. I mean, this is possibly one of the best named podcasts I've come across. It's called Design Truth, which sounds like it feels like it's a play on divine truth. Um, so I, I quite enjoyed that. And it's design oriented, bigger picture. But they've got an episode called Four Years to Save D&T. And you've got, uh, I think, a guy called Tony Ryan, who is the CEO of the Design and Technology Association. And essentially talking about where the state of DT is in the country at the moment. And obviously from a perhaps more secondary position, because there's a lot of conversation about qualifications and the standards um, that people are expected to meet before they go into the workplace. Um, but this was released in May, so the clock is ticking on those four years. Um, which is probably why we need to make this the, our focus for next year. And I think maybe in 2023, we'll try and search out people who are more knowledgeable about design technology, about the teaching of art. You know, I can think of a few people at the moment um, for episodes so we can draw on their expertise and give it the, the sort of the spotlight for a little bit. For the art, Oak National Academy stuff is still there. So if you're like me and have no idea what you're doing in terms of teaching art because you don't feel confident uh, in your own sort of artistic uh, knowledge and skill, then always worth kind of looking at uh, what they're doing there. There's a gentleman on uh, Twitter called Paul Carney. Uh, he has his own website called Paul Carney Arts, and within that he has um, art and design um, progressions. There's courses that you can do. He is also a, a consultant, so if you are looking to get him into your schools to kind of help improve your um, art, then um, you definitely could be doing that. But again, there are kind of courses there for primary teachers. Um, I'm there right now. So there's things like primary painting, um, drawing and mark making, um, simply sketchbooks, making meaningful, manageable progress in art. So things that um, as an art leader, you you know, things that you would want to engage with to kind of help bolster that um, that subject within your schools. If um, like me, you try to find any reason not to teach it. And finally, the last one that I have is a, a DT scheme. Um, it is paid for, um, but it's from Kapow, who um, they have a wide variety of schemes from different um, for different subjects. But I'm only uh, familiar with their DT one, um, which I uh, thoroughly recommend. It's very clearly based on the projects on a page stuff, which I'm sure we must have. Uh, mentioned last time um, from the DT Association. But what's really nice about um, Kapow is that there are like videos for that process as well. So if like me again, you're not particularly uh, good with you know, making things with your hands, um, you know, there's a video there to take you through it step by step. So as we've kind of been using this in, or our DT leads kind of been looking at it, it's been incredibly useful for us to um, and useful for teachers as well to kind of re really see this is, you know, when you think about 
dual modality here. It's, you know, when you read the uh, instructions, it never really makes as much sense when you get to see someone actually doing it as well. So do recommend that scheme of work. And I hear um, primary knowledge schools are also bringing one out, but I don't know about that one yet. And yeah, Elliot said he, we should get it on there. So cut it if you want to, I don't mind. <laughs> No, no, we, we couldn't possibly comment because we haven't been given access to, uh, to explore. Now, last time, computing didn't even make it into the episode. So it was on the list. It didn't make it. Do you guys have anything you'd like to add? I've got two from Rachel Walker, who obviously appeared during the recent episode on tech. She says, check out Teach Computing which appears to have sort of subject knowledge support, a computing glossary, training support. There's links to the computing hubs. Um, and then you've got things on pedagogy as well. And so I think well worth checking out, but she highly recommends that. And I trust her. Um, and it's funded by the Department of Education. It's the National Centre for Computing Education. And I think probably that should be the first place we go to is the National Centre for computing education because I was today years old when I found out that was a a thing. How is that? I don't know how that's possible. Um, and then something called barefoot computing. And she says they have really good resources for CPD and subject knowledge. So like I said, I trust Rachel's judgment on that. And um, just from a quick glance, it looks like something worth checking out, particularly in computing, because we are already so far behind our pupils in terms of uh, in terms of this whole thing. So I've got two. Unfortunately, there are some kind of uh, stipulations into you actually being able to access them and use them. Uh, the first one is something called Swift Playgrounds, which is accessible to uh, people with an iPad or um, Mac. So just think about teacher subject knowledge here. I think, you know, if people do have tablets, it does tend to be iPads, um, but it's Apple's own way of getting kids to code. It's all very straightforward, self-explanatory. I think we recommended it to Chris because you were asking for a recommendation for a friend, but it really does take you through the bare basics of what coding is and how code works. Um, using um, Apple's programming language called Swift, which um, if you believe the hype of programming languages, it's one of the easier um, languages to learn. So I think definitely uh, check that out if you're really not sure what to do. Um, I think you can get to the point now where actually you can almost code your own uh, app and almost like release it on the app store as part of what Swift Playgrounds actually offers. So obviously these apps are you know very basic, but if you do have iPads that run this, then you know you can get pupils to code apps and release them on the app store. The other one is if you are part of um, the LGFL community, so the London Grid for Learning, you have all of their um, J2 launch um, aspects. There's plenty within J2 Launch, um, but one of the most interesting things is the, particularly for this, is uh, the J2 Code application, which just has plenty of ideas for computing lesson ideas, real basic um, coding interfaces. So if you kind of remember Logo back in the day, they have their own kind of version of that. So you can like move the uh, the turtle around to make different shapes. 
I think they partner with Scratch as well. So you can get um, that kind of block coding element through from it as well. So in terms of computing, um, really recommend that one as well. The, um, the real uh, wild card is uh, something called a chat GPT, which is an AI chat bot, which just seemingly be able to answer anything that you want to do. But it can create codes if you asked it to code something. It usually defaults to Python, which is a type of coding language. But if you are so inclined and you have uh, a certain point of um, subject knowledge already, and you want to think about how you could expand that, then I've certainly uh, used quite a lot of my time looking at people who work in computer science. Uh, you, and they also are YouTube uh, content creators kind of put it through its paces. And yeah, they are seemingly impressed with what this, uh, what chat GPT can do. As of the date of recording, Wednesday the 14th, it is free, but it's not going to be free forever. So if you hear this and it is still free, definitely worth uh, worth a little play with. Yeah, I'm outsourcing my tweets to it. So very few of my tweets are actually written by me anymore. They're written by AI. And uh, and to be honest, I'll probably pay for it and get it to do lots more of my thinking for me. So you might be reading a book that appears to be written by me in the future, but actually has been written by a computer. From the relative expert end of the spectrum to uh, the other end, there is um, a program uh, or a bit of software called lightbot.com um or sorry that can be found at lightbot.com it's a little game called lightbot um and the, for that full thing it's something you pay for if you're interested in introducing say one of your own kids um to this you can get it effectively what it does it um through through the very basic idea of programming you solve little puzzles it introduces someone playing it to sequencing to uh, recursive loops, to conditionals, this kind of thing. However, as far as I remember, there is still a free version of it because I know that they produced like a demo version, which uh, was for the Coding Hour, which was a, a national initiative a while back. And I think while that might not be available unless you have Flash, which isn't really a thing anymore, you can still get bits and pieces for that on... I think iPads and iPhones and also on Android. So if you've got certain tablets in your school, you might be able to get a kind of free version of that to introduce pupils to the basics of decoding, uh, learning about, as I say, like procedures and at heart, I guess, algorithms. We made it the whole way through the curriculum. You, the other day, you guys didn't think it was possible, but there we go. At least a solid hour and a half that I'm going to try and cut into a manageable episode if you've made it this far and you think that this was helpful let us know equally if you thought actually two of these compendiums is enough let me know as well you know because we'll decide about whether or not we do a third one next year and um, but obviously it's close to christmas so be nice in how you let me know say thanks very much for those first two kieran don't think we need another one or yeah can't wait for the next one you know let me know <laughs> all that's left to do is say thank you very much. Thank you very much, Christopher. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Thank you very much. And to everyone at home, until next time, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.